Hey, Kareem Sirajuddin here, founder of Nude Human Consulting. The Coffee with Kareem podcast aims to provide Muslims and people of all backgrounds a space to share their life gifts, meet dynamic guests, and enhance the human experience one cup of coffee at a time. Sit back and sip. Episode 13, The Yin and Yang, Part 2, with Dr. Muhammad Khilan. In this conversation, we start to talk about the socio and spiritual implications of the yin and yang and give more examples from Islam and relationships. Precisely. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense because, Taban, at any moment or in any circumstance, one of the parents could be gone. Right, they could pass away, so it's almost like a rahmah that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala has this inbuilt uh, mechanism that allows us to potentialize in the other side of that yin or yang that is needed based on our context. Right um, now, what's also interesting is you find this uh, happening, you know, nowadays too, where you have men and women out in the work field, and naturally, when you're in the work field, especially corporate America, women have to also bring out that potentialization of competitiveness or aggression at times, right? Especially when you're in a very stressful um, kind of climb up the ladder uh, workplace, right? Uh, and then it's hard to almost recalibrate that harmony when you get home because both the male and female are exuding similar uh, energetic traits in their day-to-day life, right? So then you have these men who still expect, you know, this nurturing, you know, uh, woman when they come home to, but they're coming home just as exhausted as you, man. You know, don't expect them to make you, uh, you know, homemade cooking every single day like mom did, right, necessarily. So, yeah, there's just a lot of ways it can play out. I don't know if you've seen this movie, The Devil Wears, Wears Prada. There is a scene where Meryl Streep is at home. And Meryl Streep, as the actress, she's playing, and her character is having a fight with her husband. Now, the character of Meryl Streep in The Devil Wears Prada is this cutthroat, just really, you know, go for the jugular type of person. Uh, in her work environment. But then she goes home and it was such an odd contrast to watch her try to play the role of the emotional wife after having been cutthroat all you know outside in the work environment, try to play that role. And the husband was just, there's this conflict that was being played out. And it's such a minor scene in this movie, but it's so profound if you really gain a perspective about what that entails. For you to have this dual cognitive, it's like a cognitive dissonance. You have almost like a dual personality disorder. You have to act one way outside, and then you have to come and act another way inside. Right. Or or you could even frame it as like energetic malleability. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Or, or uh, you know, potential plasticity. In other words, as far as your masculine and feminine energies. And I've also found that, you know, even amongst these broad categories of what's commonly known as masculine and feminine traits, you still have variations there and you can be different types of quote unquote masculine or feminine individuals. So for instance, you know, the the like in high school there's all these categories of, of, of groups of people, right? Like you have like the jocks and the nerds and the artists and yada yada. I was a nerd. Um <laughs> <laughs> really that's very shocking. I, I need to see the research and data on that. But uh the you know this idea of like you know the football player right who's like you know he likes to show his competitiveness and aggression through you know sports and motor skills and being loud and being able to you know get the girls and yada yada and then you got like the guy who might be a nerd right and he's not going to be able to play football or he's not uh in that scene at all yet 
His masculinity comes out through his strong capacity for abstraction and understanding systems and structures. And these are the people that become engineers and computer scientists later. And then, you know, um, so it's like you even have variation of what it means to be masculine, too. There is no one one size fits all, so to speak. And I think you can even find the same thing with women, right? You have what's called kind of the strong woman who could also be um, very... Um, you know, uh, nurturing and and uh, uh, loyal and uh, you know cooperative, so to speak. But yet, she still knows how to be competitive and aggressive when it comes to protecting her family or protecting her husband or her own you know place at her, at a workplace, right? And so on and so forth. So it's interesting that you brought up this example because, yeah, absolutely, there there is. Um, still this um, energetic malleability but I've also found that there are people that you know and this probably brings in the variable of socio um, cultural uh, input right where that's not necessarily happening as easily for some people you know that you know when I go home I'm, I assume these uh, other roles that um, would meet this kind of yin and yang or expectation of uh, the wife or the husband. Uh, and I've also found in certain, you know, cultures or family situations where if you have, let's say, stronger matriarchy, where women tend to be more dominating, the men generally aren't as they're more passive. And they tend to lack some of these other masculine qualities like competitiveness or aggression or, or leadership and, 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 uh, and so on and so forth forth um so you know there's just a lot of variables going on here and uh i think when you start to uh think about it um it's it's easy to see um the yin and yang that we're talking about but then there's a lot of ways that you know that yin and yang that circle can spin around very quickly and then it almost becomes one color i mean you're right and um what I find interesting about our modern society and the way that it's moving forward, especially with regards to um, how gender and um, equality and sameness and all of these concepts are being redefined. If you think about the yin and the yang, the yang is supposed to be the active. The yin is the passive. The yang is supposed to be the creative. The yin is the receptive. And so you're very right. You know, you could you could be creative and active in multiple fields, in different fields. You don't have to be uh, – masculinity is not – restricted to one area and that's what it means to be a man what's interesting about the modern society though is that they're trying to negate the receptive negate the passive negate the female basically take away the yin and turn it all into a yang and if you look into how relationships are now uh, developing and evolving how we engage with uh, each other and with the environment itself this is, I don't know, when I see all of these environmental disasters and stuff, I just see it as a response to the um, manifestation of so much yang energy and lack of yin energy. There's no give anymore. And I don't know if that has anything to do with, um, if that is a strong contributor to why so many relationships or increasing an increasing number of relationships is failing. Because people just don't want to give. They just want to give in a little bit and receive and be a bit more passive at times when it's needed. The malleability that you just mentioned. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot to say about that. But I did see an article in uh, Psychology Today, I think it was like a year or two ago, and they were talking about how these next generations um, seem to possess 
more narcissism than ever before, right? And mm. and maybe this also has to do with just the nature of, you know, the market yeah. the market and what it means to be successful and كل حاجة now is I, 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 me, me, me. Yeah. And uh, so naturally, this is going to shape and condition our psychology, right? And how we see ourselves in the world. But, you know, going back to this yin and yang, something that I offer, which maybe can give us um, a little more of a um, practical framework for our listeners out there is, you know, I say, listen, Bottom line is, think about it like this. I, I call it the powerful, uh, the the powerful peas. Um, both men and women provide. You know this idea of oh, men are the providers, and I say no, no, no. Actually, mom and dad are providers, but we provide differently, right? Yes. And, and provide by what I mean by that is to give and to share. That's a provider. So men and women provide differently in families. We also are both producers. And what I mean by that is we both create and make things of benefit or contribution to the world and to the family. And we both produce differently. Um, we're, we're also perceivers. We're both perceivers. We both see and understand facets of reality and human experiences differently, right? And we're both preservers. We both maintain and establish what is good and healthy in different ways. And lastly, we're both protectors. We both keep away harm in different ways. So one example of this is like, you know, if someone breaks into your house and you hear all those ruckus downstairs, right? First thing, you know, the wife usually says, honey, go downstairs and check out what's going on, right? So he grabs his bat, you know, and, and uh, puts on his Batman t-shirt and, and walks downstairs to see what's going on. And the kids run into the bedroom and mom's, you know, holding them under her arms and she's on the phone calling 911, right? And in this situation, they're both protecting, right? Uh, but they're doing it in different ways. Another example I like to use is when you want to teach your child how to ride a bike, right? How does how does dad teach him how to ride a bike? And how does mom teach him how to ride a bike, right? Dad is like, you know, here you go, I'm, I'm pushing you off. Now you got to learn, you know, the physics of gravity now. And, and it's okay, yeah. if you fall, you know, you're going to scrape some knees. But yeah. this is what's going to get you to really force yourself to balance yourself because you have to yeah. feel the fear or the risk of falling and getting hurt. Meanwhile, mom is on the sidelines going, watch out, he's going to fall or she's going to fall pick him up don't let him fall right so she's also still trying to protect right and in, and, and sometimes <laughs> yeah and sometimes sometimes it, it actually i think it also depends a lot on the context that sometimes the masculine wisdom is more appropriate for the situation whereas the feminine wisdom can be more appropriate for other situations right like the classic you know i'm sure as an arab you know this like when you go to azuma you go visit somebody right what does mom always say don't forget to pick something up on our way right the, yes. d the dad just wants to be on time right and the mom is like no we have to stop at that lovely bakery and and get this cake and this and that because she also understands the relational side and the husband is just thinking about we we need to be on time to show respect to the family and my sahish right so yeah, you, right. you think about it and you see there's so many different ways that this can play out and subhanallah we really do need each other more than we think and i and i and i feel sad that in the current narrative we, you know, it's almost like this illusion of, you know, now we're free from all these chains of gender identity and sexuality and male and female and this and that. But it's like, actually, you know, this healthy model of yin and yang, for me, it only brings more um, unification. Because if we really, if we really honor the gifts that we each have to offer and the different ways it manifests, I mean, that's what makes us whole uh, as a species, in my opinion. You're right. I mean, it's, 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 it, these are like, that's why I find the, 
the current situation very paradoxical. On the one hand, they want to value diversity, right? It's like differences. But then when you talk about differences, they look at that as a negative. Like, why is it's you can't have one and not the other? You know, if you want diversity, have the diversity, but there are these differences and there is this concern with outcome that everything has to be the same at some point. Right. Why is that? I don't get it. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of, uh, I think you mentioned it on your podcast, the, the latest one on females, uh, excuse me, on gender science uh, about the story that mm. guy in Google, you know, oh, yeah. um, you know, that kind of brings up this um, point I think you're making. And uh, yeah, this idea of like, you know, almost like we want to force certain genders into particular fields and universities. It's like, well, you know, to prove that everything is equal. It's like, well, you know, I studied psychology. I mean, I did a bachelor's and master's in psychology. And I'll tell you right now, 75, 80% of all the students were, what do you think they were, Dr. Muhammad? They were they were girls. They were women. They're a female, and I love that. I'm I was happy, right? But my but but it was. As far as I know, I could tell you one thing. I took one course in psychology back in the day, and looking around, and um, the reason guys take psychology is to meet the girls. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah. Hence why I, you know, a masters for me to believe that it's about passion for the field. But again, it's an observation. It's like what I don't, you don't, I don't feel like you necessarily have to force psychology classes around the world now or in our countries to be fifty-fifty now. Like, oh, sorry, we've maximized on our female capacity, so now we're only accepting males to major in psychology. It's like, where, what happened to that free choice? What happened to the diversity and tolerance that we're always hearing about? When now we're actually dictating certain ideas about how things should always be, whether it's going to the bathroom or taking a course or, or what do degree you want you know i mean let people go towards what they're naturally inclined to go towards who are you to to judge just like you know certain people claim that you know traditional uh culture or or values are are so judgmental and static in their positioning around male and female well it's almost happening in the same way it's almost like a reverse uh discrimination so to speak i mean i could tell you i i recently gave a talk about modernity and um one of the points that I brought up was regards with regards to this, and I had one of the sisters, a couple of the sisters come up and ask about that, and they were talking about social conditioning and why there are differences, and do you think that there should be fairness and whatnot? And the point is this. I think that um, uh, uh, the just position is that you should have equal access to whoever wants, regardless of gender you know, identity, you know, if they're male or female, I don't care. If someone is interested in, if, if we have a sister who's interested in sitting for 10 hours a day behind a computer and code, more power to her. If that's Bismillah, she wants, yeah, go, go for, for it. it. Like, I'm not going to stop you. But now what's going on in, in certain pursuit of this type of sameness, what they've done is they, they've implemented different programs that actually disfavor men, but in the long term, they will disfavor women. And I'll give you how, I'll show you how that plays out. Um, I remember when I was doing my PhD in the biochemistry department, I recall there was one of the girls who was doing her uh, master's, I think, because of the, the copious number of scholarships available to women and the low number of women who enter into the field, um, this girl was getting paid something like $55,000 a year, which is stipend money. Like this is tax-free income that she was getting – as a, a grad student in university. Meanwhile, all the guys are getting paid, you know, the $22,000 a year. We're just basically scraping by. So on the one hand, she's getting paid all that much. 
she had access to all of these scholarships that she was able to, and she basically had her place guaranteed if she had the bare minimum GPA criteria to get into the program because there weren't as many girls applying to the program. On the other hand, if you have the guys, we have to compete with each other because there's a lot more guys applying for the same position. So you had to get the cream of the crop. You had to get the top guys to do it. So the smarter guys are the ones getting into these programs. They're the ones that are getting through. They're, they're scraping by while they do it. So some of them have to get sometimes second jobs so that they can pay their rent and eat something. So they're having extracurricular commitments on top of the commitment they have to perform in with regards to their academia. And then when they graduate, now you're in the world. In the world, you can't do this control mechanism as you did in academia. In the real world, now it's going to be a competition game. Who do you think is going to be a more highly competitive, uh, better equipped to handle the challenges of the world after having gone through the system? It's going to be the guys. And so the girls now are going to be disfavored. You know, so it's, it's, um, it's, a, it's a very short-term way of look, short-sighted way of looking at things. Yeah, subhanAllah. It's uh, we're in, in interesting times, as the famous Chinese proverb says, <laughs> and it's uh, it applies in every time too. That's the best part. So, but let's let's maybe back up a little and, and take it back to the Islamic tradition, um, because there's a lot of listeners that do um, relate or identify with this tradition. So, we do know that Allah Subhanahu wa Taala talks about there's a difference between a male and female in the Quran. Um, we we know that in Islamic um, sacred law there are certain um, positions for men and women, right? There's variation of these things, whether it's like you know men wearing silk or or gold versus you know um, uh, and, and and versus women being allowed to um, or you know inheritance issues or you know men are are expected to be the providers at least financially and when it comes to physical materials, whereas women aren't. They're allowed to keep their wealth. I mean in a in a modern context i wanted to get your idea of opinion about this so now you have a lot of situations where you know some of our sisters not all of them some of our sisters want their cake and they to, they want to have their cake and eat it too right like mashallah they're doctors they're engineers they're lawyers they're this they're that and they make you know great salaries like their husbands but the husband still has to pay for everything and she gets to you know buy uh whatever she wants and enjoy and keep all her wealth and this and that and for a lot of muslim guys they're like yo this isn't fair this doesn't seem just and fair like i have to you know provide for everything i have no savings you know um what meanwhile she's saving and and she gets to fly to paris in the summer with her girlfriends and i'm you know i'm not right so i mean from from an islamic perspective there's also a lot of interesting um shifts that are happening uh when it comes to these things and i, I wonder if the way you know uh this idea of you know again i guess we're going into husband and wife role and this and that and there's different schools of opinion about it and you know you know still like how much of these rules in islamic law apply to modern muslims whose context is so different from when these laws were revealed how how would we even begin to start reconciling that in your opinion well i would say that um looking at the the when we talk about the context is so different when they were revealed but you know, when the Qur'an was revealed, it was meant to be the final statement. According to the Qur'an, this is it. This is the complete revelation. You've got everything you need now. And basically, the sign of the end of time coming was the Messenger ﷺ being sent. That's the first sign. So uh, how do you reconcile that with these differences in context? And what I would say is um, don't confuse the appearance of change with the essence of change. 
Um, you know, these sisters, for example, that, yeah, maybe they're getting all of the money and they're making all that income. But you know what? There's one thing that you didn't change, which is your biology. If you look at some of the wisdoms behind why these laws are the way that they're, they're constructed the way that they are, it basically provides financial stability and security. It's, as you mentioned, um, I don't know, um, I think you mentioned this at the start here, talking about the differences between what women want, for example, in a marriage. And one of the top things is their financial stability and security versus men who don't really think about that as much. Um, so it, it secures them in case of if she gets pregnant and she has to take care of an offspring, I mean, if you look at the way that the laws are, are, are revealed, they are to favor the woman's financial stability in lieu of her biology, which she cannot get rid of. Now, you can point to anecdotal examples of, well, what about so-and-so and so-and-so? Again, we're talking at a population level, and I've seen this personally just, you know, just observing the scene and working with the Muslim community, and there are a lot of people that say a lot of things before they start having children. And the second children come into the equation, you know, calculations change. Things become different. It's it's almost like a switch that goes off in their brain. And it's a whole other ballgame ball ball when you have another human being that you now are responsible for. So things change and you start to wonder about how important it is, is it really for you to pursue this thing that you're pursuing with your, your career or whatever. And we actually find it also in, um, I could tell you, for example, in the Canadian medical system, one of the problems with sometimes having shortages of physicians is because in pursuit of, let's make sure we get equality, equality, equality. Well, most of the women, uh, female physicians, end up having children. What do they end up doing? They work less hours, they go on maternity leave, because to them, that's more important. And so that actually ends up manifesting at a larger scale with physician shortage. <laughs> we don't have as many doctors because we've ensured to have 50-50 representation. So. You can point at the law and say, well, our context is different. We have all of these things where the women are favored in that way. Well, they are favored because by and large, the law, doesn't uh, the law does not speak to the – I mean, I can tell, tell you about alcohol, for example. Alcohol is impermissible. You can't come near it. Well, I can point to isolated examples of people who can have their glass of wine and they're fine. They're not even buzzed by it um, and they're very responsible. But by and large, we know that just from empirical findings that as a, as a drug, alcohol – beats all other drugs out there, If even if you combine them. Combine heroin, cocaine, methamphetamines, combine the negative impact of all of these drugs together, and alcohol trumps all of that. Really? I didn't know that. How, yeah. how so? In, in its social and as well in health impact. It is just about everything we look at in medicine right now with regards to so many of the different common diseases and disorders. Alcohol is always a risk factor. It is the other thing about alcohol, for example, is you don't even have to be drinking alcohol for you to be harmed by it because you could literally be crossing the street, minding your own business, and some drunk driver can come and end your life or destroy it at the very least. So, but in Islam, we don't say, well, we have these individuals who can drink and they're fine. We look at the greater social impact. The laws are revealed in a way that speaks to the majority of people. How is this going to play out in society? Not at an individual level, but at a social level. At a social level, you have. Most women are not engaged in this. You know, sometimes you get tricked by the media representation that gives you the impression that this is how society is functioning. For example, Gallup polls uh, did a, a polling looking at what is the perception of Americans, for example, of the prevalence of homosexuals in society. And they overestimated it by either six or ten times. 
Yeah, and the reason for it, when they try to track it, what's the reason? It's media representation. When you start seeing uh, people who identify as homosexual all over the media, taking over everything um, with your talk shows and things like that, and I'm not trying to knock on that and try to, you know, people can take that and say, oh, being homophobic. I'm just saying when you overrepresent a group that has a particular message to deliver to people, the, the, the perception of the public is going to change based on that. Case in point is Islamophobia. You have numerous accounts of white supremacists engaged in all kinds of terrorist activity that overwhelms any terrorist activity that individual Muslims have engaged in. But what is the public perception? It's that Muslims are the problem, white supremacists are not so much so. Because even the terms are differently used. So that's what I would say to people that look at these things and wonder about what is the relevance of these laws. By and large, if you engage in the grassroots level and engage with people, even highly educated people, women, including women, and just actually talk to them and see how, what they think about these things. The laws are to their benefit despite the public's or the popular media diatribe against it. Right. Yeah, I mean, when I when I was in grad school, um, I was living in San Francisco, and I, I remember um, a, a friend of my roommates. She was, uh, you know, successful uh, career woman. She had a dog and an apartment, you know, living the, the awesome life, right? And And one day she was over for dinner. And she broke down and started crying. I think she was like in her early 30s at this point. Not she's not Muslim or anything. Just a you know a friend of of, of my roommates. And she started breaking it down and, and and she started saying, you know, all I want is a family, and I would trade everything I have right now to live in a trailer, you know, with a with a good man and and some kids. And I was like, really? Like, but you work so hard for your life, you know? Like, why would you switch all that? And, and she's just like, this. That's what I want. And it was almost like I was witnessing her biological clock, you know, yearning for something. You know, not to say that women who don't have kids are inadequate or Definitely all that not. stuff. But as you said, as you said, the majority of women ge generally will have children and will want to have children because there is a strong biological mechanism in the species for us to procreate and and pass on our genetic material. You can't just stomp that out. And not just women, by the way. It's even most men are like that too. Like they want the thing is you can you can achieve so many things in your life. But what does it matter if you end up going home to a lonesome existence where you don't share any of it with anybody? Right. I was going to bring up the uh, the counter example too. If I've also met men that were very successful and like, you know, I think a lot of young men would look up to them and be like, man, you have it all. I want to be like you. But then they would say things to other brothers or, or men who had families and wives like, you know, you have more than, than you think. You know, you have more than what, what I have, right? Because just because I got the money and the cars and, and I'm single and yada, yada. It's like, but coming home, to a cold, empty house, you know, or or not being able to, you know, play catch with my own spawn. Um, those are things that also hit men, too. You know, there is something about it. Forget about cold, empty house. You have Jannah. Literally, you're sitting in the garden. And you are the first human being, Adam, alayhi salam. Literally sitting in Jannah. Everything is at your hand. Beck and call. Whatever you want. SubhanAllah. You have no need whatsoever. Subhanallah. And what does he end up with? He still feels lonely and he still wants a mate. So you want to share these things. You Like humans are just by nature. It's like insan from uns. We're social creatures. We're social yeah. creatures. We need people. So the problem with the modern culture and the way that it develops is that it values. Men are as much a victim of this as women are. 
you know, and, you know, we value career, we value money, we value all of these material things, which, you know, it's like, uh, if you give the son of Adam a mountain of gold, they'll ask another one. And the only thing that the son of Adam will, t- will be satisfied with is literally the dust of their own grave. Yeah, and it's almost like I, I always thought about that hadith because I found it so interesting. I'm like, well, you know, just, well, how about this? Give me a mountain of gold, God, and I'll see if I'll ask for another one, right? Because I'd, I'd love to test that. But then <laughs> yeah. I, but then I reflect, then I reflected <laughs> on it, right? And I thought, because I, I take this for example when it comes to, you know, something as simple as a, a delicious meal. Right. You can eat a delicious meal and be full and content. But because there's more of it on the table, you go and you get more, even though you don't need more. Right. And you feel full. Subhanallah. So I also reflect it's like, yeah, what if I, you know, what if I did have a mountain of gold or just give me that $10 million um, and I won't ask for any more. But the problem with that that people overlook is when you have $10 million or a mountain of gold, you're going to start living a lifestyle that reflects this wealth. And then you get adjusted to that and that becomes your new baseline. And once that becomes your new baseline, it becomes old after a while and you want more and more and more and this is this idea of appetite stretching which happens on the physical and uh, material level if you will Mm -hmm. that's why you see in um, looking at the happiness index um, when they looked at what level of income will people be happy and does it increase the happiness index to make more money and what they found is that uh, some, I think the number that I came across was something like sixty-five or seventy thousand dollars a year, um, on average, which is you, you adjust it for your own city. But basically, once you have your bills paid, you have yeah. Here, here, here in Silicon Valley, it would be like three hundred k. So basically, just make sure that you have enough income to have a roof over your head, have food in the fridge, have your bills paid. If you have all of these things secured, and you're able to sleep at night well. If you make more money, it doesn't actually increase the happiness index. The maximum happiness index comes about when you have these things. And that correlates perfectly with the hadith of مَنْ بَاتَ فِي دَارِهِ ضَامِنًا قُوتَ آمِنًا فِي سِرْبِهِ ضَامِنًا قُوتَ يَوْمِهِ فَكَأَنَّمَا حِيزَتْ لَهُ الدُّنْيَا It's like whoever sleeps in their home, safety, with safety, and having food guaranteed for the day, it's as if they've got the whole world. Because at the end of the day, yeah. there's a maximum level of what you can consume on a daily basis. Right. And, I, and I've done my own kind of subjective experimentation, right? Where like when I was in, let's say, a student, yeah, um, I, would, I would reflect on this. I'd be like, you know, let me, just, let me just tell myself how good I really have it. Like these basic things like, yeah, I, I, have, a, I have shelter. I ate today. You know, I'm safe. And when I really reflect and ponder on that and, and have real shukr, I feel like a sultan. But as soon as I start thinking about how, man, I, you know, as a student, I was, you know, I only have a thousand dollars in my uh, a month or my bank account. And I'm just, man, I'm so broke. When am I going to get, you know, a, a break? Then you can start to feel all that negativity. Right. And, and grossness. And to really bring this point home, when I first moved to San Francisco, I lived in a hostel in um, in North Beach. And um, and it was like a very crappy room. It was like an old room. It, there was just a sink in it and a, and a bed, and I had a little fridge. Even the bathroom and the kitchen was shared. The kitchen was just a disaster, so I never used it. But just very simple living, okay, CD? And then when I went to go visit the masjid in San Francisco for the first time, is in downtown on Market Street. Some of you might know a Jones Street uh, masjid. I, I, I actually met for the first time uh, in my life homeless Muslims. 
ماشي homeless Muslims and I met these brothers you know we're praying and then we go downstairs and uh, one of them was kind of messing with me because he knew I was new to the community he's like he's like brother come over for some tea and then we go downstairs and in front of the masjid he pulls out a lawn chair and sits down he says have a seat this is my apartment I'm like what do you mean he's like I'm homeless he's like all of us are and there were like three or four other guys I was like wow, wow. there's a whole community of homeless people in that area and there was also a Muslim subculture and he told me you know he told me all about their world that they have you know a marketplace and he said you know we the Muslims were known to you know for mediation among the other homeless uh, people here in the community and uh, we're known not to do drugs and this and that so people would come wow. and count on us and they had this whole other culture and one night they said to me you know brother Kareem why don't you sleep over there's a, there's a square on the sidewalk right here for you you know and they were they were like they were joking but they were also serious and I just, and then I just felt so ashamed when I went home that night I was like man I was complaining about this hostel that I'm living in and when I went back to that hostel I felt like a sultan You know, I felt like, subhanAllah, you know, so much has to do with our perspectives. Well, the thing is, it's uh, this whole business of like when people talk about equality and whatnot. I mean, even in the Quran, equality is negated because Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, That we have preferred some of you over others. And Allah doesn't speak about, God Almighty doesn't speak about men over women. He just says, generally speaking, some of you have been preferred over others in wealth. So that's just the way that it is. And so there is this call in the Quran even always to just look at your own condition. Look at your own situation and seek your own fulfillment. Don't try to do this comparative because as soon as you start comparing with other people, you're going to have resentment. You're going to have ingratitude. Um, you're going to have a lot of problems and it's just general unhappiness and depression because you're always comparing your situation with – Oh man, like this other person is living in a nicer apartment or this other person has access to this thing that I don't have access to rather than just for me, let me just focus on what I have. And that's personally that I practice every single time because everybody has their down times and up times, right? So when I feel a little bit of sadness or whatever, I just go out for a walk. And the first thing that I'm struck with is I just made a conscious decision. Like who has, how many people in the world have this luxury of being able to say, I'm going to go out for a walk because I'm feeling a little sad. Even the fact that I'm thinking about that is a luxury in itself. And I just immediately start to bring myself up. And like you said, you feel like a sultan. Like, my goodness, I have access to so many things that people don't have access to. Clean water, for God's sake. Just that alone. Yeah. So I don't think about it from like, oh, I'm a guy or this is a girl. Just think about your own self-fulfillment. Like, what do you want out of this life? And link that up with, the, with this divine transcendent compass for you. So there's nothing in Islam, for example, that says you're a woman, therefore you are doomed because you have a womb to be playing roles X, Y, and Z. Right. It's not the case. You know, everybody has different potentialities, different things to gain access to. If you want to fight for anything, fight for equity of access. Right. That you should not be barred from entering into any field simply because you're a woman. Right. Totally. You know what I mean? If you have what it takes to take it, go for it. Bismillah. You know, all the power to you. I don't want to code, but if you want to code and you're a sister who wants to code, go ahead, code all you want, make all kinds of apps and be, be a billionaire. But uh, that's what I would fight for. But to as far as I need to make sure that I'm equal to men, I mean, that if you even think about that, they've just made the assumption that being like men is the higher calling. Right. In the modern world, be like men. 
well, maybe men are actually being victimized. Do you want to be victimized just like the men are? Is that what you're looking for? Right. And men don't possess, there are certain gifts and powers that they don't possess like you. So why would you, you know, deny that or ignore it? And and you don't see too many men out there. Well, now, again, it's slightly changing in certain parts of the country, but, you know, where <laughs> men want to be women too, and they want to have babies too, you know, other words, pregnancy, but, but, you know, yeah, but what, what came up for me too was just to clarify. So you were saying the reminder is, you know, like the Prophet said, when it comes to material wealth or things, don't look at people above you because it can cause that grief and ingratitude. But, you know, but we do, we should exactly. reflect about the favors that Allah gave us, right? But I also wanted to add that, you know, my understanding of risk from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, provision and sustenance that Allah provides, it's not just materialism, right? For example, you, you, may, you may only not. make 50K a year, right? But alhamdulillah, Allah blessed you with, with health, an intellect that the guy who makes 300k a year may not have maybe he he has you know a, a, a lifelong disease that he's fighting behind the scenes you just don't know right um allah blesses us and gives us in different ways sometimes like i know a friend of mine he's a really nice guy you know fairly successful he's an entrepreneur and all this stuff and as i got to know him more turns out the brother's an orphan you know, his his parents died when he was, you know, 22, and then he only had one sibling, wow. a sister, and she died five years later. Tragedy. Right? So, so you don't know what people's lives and layers are about. You know, you really don't know. So you might look at someone and go, oh, look at him or look at her. But then you actually find out, like, you know, everybody's package is different. You know, um, there's it's not it's not the same. And I think it's important, as you said, there's no such thing as absolute um, equality and justice in this world. I think our roles as humans and and as as people pursuing virtue is we always want to attempt, right, or or um, forge as much equality and justice as possible. But it's never going to be absolute and complete, right? Simple example, you know, if I'm if if some killer, um, you know, murders twenty people and you know, he goes to, uh, and, and the state or the country decides, you know, we're going to put you to death because of what you did. Still, you took 20, 20 human lives and damaged 20 families, and the state is only taking one life. So even there, you're still not getting absolute justice, which is why, yeah, is which, which is yeah. why, you know, <laughs> perhaps uh, many of the world religions, specifically the Abrahamic ones, they talk about this idea of absolute karma in the hereafter. And, you know, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the divine, will make everything um, equalize. That is only something that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can do. Nobody else can, can do it absolutely. But our job is to um, pursue in that matter as much as we can. Would you say that's that's a healthier way to understand it? That's definitely a healthy way to understand it, yeah. Very good points there. Yeah. Just wanted to bring one final point if you because we just briefly touched on this difference in rulings and stuff. And I just wanted to, if that's okay with you. Please. Because uh, we talk, I, I want to incorporate this idea of the, or bring for practi in practical terms the idea of the yin and yang and having the potentialities of the opposite within each one. If you look at men and women in the world representing this duality of the yin and the yang, and we know that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, if you categorize the divine attributes into almost yin-yang type of attributes, majestic and beautiful names, what you have in the female is the manifestation of the jamali, and in the, fem in the male, the jalali. The male manifests the majestic, and the female ma manifests the, the beautiful. 
But because you have this, to, for you to become a complete human being, to be, to become in harmony, to basically walk in the footsteps of the Prophet ﷺ and try to bring your potentiality of the opposite side that you're lacking in, you have differences in rulings in the Islamic tradition and in the Quran that pertain to these things. So I'll give you an example. Um, when it comes to covering, when a woman engages in prayer, one of the conditions is that she has to cover everything except for the hands and the face. And the male doesn't have to cover as much, but there's still covering involved in there. What you find in the covering is that the woman has to cover her beauty, the, the, the beautiful uh, manifestation of hers, in order for her to be able to access the majestic, which is the potentiality of bringing out this internal spiritual power that is not manifested, because if you allow the, the beautiful to overcome the majestic, the majestic is not going to have a chance to manifest itself. For the male, on the other hand, he's all majestic. So he needs to be able to access the beauty. And the beauty, when he engages in prayer, you'll find that's why the Prophet ﷺ said that when you recite the Quran, فَبْكُوا, weep. And he's talking, yeah, generally to all men and women, but it's a lot easier for a, for a woman to, to weep when she's reciting and feeling spiritual than a man. So he ﷺ tells the men, if you couldn't cry, if you couldn't weep, then at least pretend to weep so that you can try to initiate or instigate this emotion out of you so that you can manifest this beauty, the potentiality of the yin within you to come out so that you can experience. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said that take, take upon yourselves, adorn yourselves with the attributes of Allah. How do you do that? You find these differences in rulings. If you approach the Islamic tradition, not just as strictly legal stuff, but look at the spirit behind this legal stuff. You have to engage in the legal things. When I say spirit of the law, I don't mean negate the law. That's why um, there's a text uh, by Sachiko Murata, the Tao of Islam, that I recommend people read. It's a bit... Great book. Very dense, though. <laughs> it's very dense, but it has so many gems in it. And one of the things that she mentions in it is that you have to engage with the law as it is. If you want to manifest the potentiality of the opposite side of you. So if you're a woman, you have to wear the hijab if you really want to experience the majestic part of this religion in the way that it is supposed to be manifested. The majestic part of the divine, you know, the aspect of the divine as, as it should be experienced. That potentiality within you so that you can really get the whole picture. But if you try to tinker with the law and negate aspects of it for the sake of your... I don't know, cultural agenda or whatever it is that you want, you're actually selling yourself short. Mm. So you're you're missing out on the maximum potentialization. But I, I, I'm still a little unclear as to how the male not needing to cover his head um, is experiencing the Jamel. Because you you mentioned that when he prays, he, he's he's trying to cry, which is about evoking emotion, which I get. But but you started off by talking about what is meant to be worn. Practically a practical example. If you look at the fashion industry, who is it directed towards? Females generally, yes. Generally females, mostly females. You hardly, it's, yeah, there's some male fashion, but generally the fashion industry is about the female, female uh, tantalizing the female kind of uh, imagination and just going after the beauty, the manifest beauty, the apparent beauty like that. Now for the males, that is not as an important thing for them. It is not, it's not some, for women, for example, at least because I grew up around a lot of women, <laughs> The hair is like a big deal. It is a huge deal for women when it comes to hair. And you see that especially with the unfortunate cases of cancer patients. One of the biggest problems that they have is the loss of their hair. 
It's like a, a it's it's a marker of beauty that is not considered as such when it comes to the males. And that's why I have male pattern baldness. People just decide, oh, I'm just going to shave my whole head. I don't care. It's not as big of a deal for the guys. But for the women, generally speaking, I know you can find some guys that care so much about their hair, but generally speaking, for the women, that's like their tash. And so you have – if. If you're if you're attached to outward beauty, material beauty that withers by nature, you're not going to gain access to eternal beauty, to the eternal majesty. And that's why in the prayer, when you're trying to connect with the eternal, you have to divorce yourself from the material a little bit. And one aspect of that for the women, because it just seems the way that it manifests itself in our world, fashion industry like uh, as such, the way that it manifests itself the female is more concerned with this outward worldly beauty, materialistically speaking, than the male seems to be. The male is focused on it from sexual gratification and things like that. But for the females, I mean, I could tell you, because uh, I grew up in Riyadh for a little bit, women, from what I heard, I haven't seen it because it's segregated and the way they have their parties is totally separate. I wondered, like, why would you want to dress up? Why don't you just guys all go in your sweat shorts and sweatpants and whatever and like just hang out? Women get dressed up for other women. And this is something I, I didn't think, I thought women get dressed up to get noticed by men. But I was corrected time and again that actually it's about the other women. It's not about men. It's about other women. So that, did you see what she was wearing? Do you see the shoes that she has? Yeah, social, com social competition, if you will. Social competition. And so you find in the Islamic tradition that there is this, it allows for it in, different con in some contexts when it's just amongst the women. But when it comes to prayer and such, I'm talking about just the, you know, strictly a ritual aspect of it it tells you you have to separate yourself from that. Because as a woman, that manifests externally for you and we're trying to get internally. The prayer is supposed to be a connection that you establish through external actions to make an internal connection with your soul to your Lord. So how do you get through that? You have to engage in external activities that will facilitate that. For the female, just the way that the female energy is manifested, that requires covering up. For the male, it doesn't require the covering up to the degree that the female needs to. Right. You know, it also what also comes up for me is I don't know if you've ever um, reflected on this, but I find that you know in the Quran, it, there's almost like this sequence of like when Allah mentions the male and female, as samawati wal ard, you know, the heavens or the universes and the earth, the moon is is masculine in Arabic from what I remember, and the shams is feminine. Right. And then you have like the night and the day. And so these also kind of give you this sequence of like, as Allah says, like in the heavens and the earth are signs and in yourselves, like if you reflect. So I always, I always like to kind of see how nature offers us kind of this map of meaning as well. And you do find this in other cultures, right? That this idea of mother earth and father sky and, you know, naturally the sky has been used, especially at night for navigation. Right and direction, which is something that the male needs to do. Um, the earth is, of course, the life system of 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 us, the species. It's it's colorful, it's lush, it's fertile. The the clouds brings rain forth, right, to fertilize the earth and and give vegetation. Similarly, male, you know, inseminates in the female. Um, and then this idea of the moon, like the the beacon of light or guidance in the darkness, you know, um, and how it's handsome. And you can look at the moon and it doesn't hurt your eyes, whereas the sun. 
you can't look at it right it's it's uh it's it's very dangerous and it's like you know it's like you can't look at women you know in that in the you know it's almost like your eyes will burn if you you know this idea of and the aura right for a man is different from a woman and what he can expose in front of uh women that aren't in relation to him um you know she can see a man with his shirt off right the prophet sallallahu had his shirt off at times right around the people um and this idea is, is interesting because you see this kind of natural um, sequence and, and reflection. But one specific question I had, which I wanted to a- ask you about, which I find is pretty common and interesting. So if we kind of go with the sequence and the masculine with the knight, for instance, right? I find this is a very common complaint in couples work. Women go to bed early. They get up early, generally speaking. They're very active during the day, right? Men it's like a very common complaint and i've i'm i'm a i'm a you know villain of this too it's like some of us love to stay up late and we just love something about the stillness of the night now sure you can argue well there's stillness of the night you know in the early uh you know before fajr sure right but but commonly this is a complaint i hear a lot about it's like my husband doesn't want to come to bed he's always up really late and i ask the men and the men always say the same things right it's like well i find a lot of peace in the night it's when i get to relax and decompress and i'm wondering if you think there's some sort of genetic basis to this like men if you know if you're looking hundreds and thousands of years back, we needed to protect and secure our tribes and our areas. And so you had a lot of men doing like night watches, perhaps, right? And so maybe there's something intrinsic in us that we, you know, naturally, a lot of men enjoy the night hours and and staying up late. Um, I'm wondering what you think about that. Again, if if you're going to go with an evolutionary explanation to this, it it does make sense because... Uh, the guys that got killed were the ones who were asleep, <laughs> and the ones who survived were the ones who were awake. I mean, raids happen at night. That's when usually people want to uh, – wars get started at night. Nobody starts a war in broad daylight. It usually happens at night, and that's when they do the attacks. And so the ones who survived were the ones who were awake. And if you think about what it takes to stay awake, usually it has to do with some circadian rhythm mechanisms that some people are just night people. And because they were the ones who happened to survive and propagate and pass that genetic proclivity on. So their offspring are the ones that grew up now to want to be stay up, you know, to stay up at night. Um, it does make sense in that way. Um, I kind of, I guess I, uh, I'm kind of weird because for me, I get up at 2.30 in the morning and I sleep at 8.30 in the evening. So, and, you know, I spend a good portion of the night awake because that's when it's yeah it's still it's quiet i get to focus on my work and no distractions it might have something to do with this intrahemispheric versus interhemispheric connections you know back and forth versus back uh, you know between the two hemispheres side to side that men generally speaking are very poor quote-unquote multitaskers um you know we we get easily distracted whereas women you know you can put them in the middle of a storm and they'll be able to do a multiple things yeah I, I notice myself like at night i always have this routine that is even unconscious like i check to make sure the doors are locked even though i know it's locked but it's almost like comforting you know go i hear a noise i go out on the porch i, I look outside to see if there's it's a, and i sometimes think to myself like this is your ancient uh genetic disposition coming out it's like yeah. you know you know <laughs> but it's funny because uh, i found that to be an observable pattern uh, even amongst the couples i've worked with right i mean that's interesting stuff to note right and to just just recognize, you know, we're not talking now in strictly empirical, scientific, verifiable, peer journal, article approved kind of discussions, but these are patterns that we observe that people fall into, generally speaking. We are making the caveat that not everybody's like this. And just because you know this general 
pattern that you see amongst the male population doesn't give you a license to issue judgments about how individual males need to behave. Uh, same thing for women. So, you know, and that's just the way the nature of the world that it's working. So that's really the the main concern that I have with all of these discussions is to just really remind people to come back to, um, I mean, even in couples work, if you have a, a, a sister who has more masculine energy, as far as I, I recall, it's uh, higher success of uh, f- uh, higher rates of success that you would get a, a guy who has more of the feminine energy manifesting, so that you have the balance and harmony between them in the relationship. I don't know; you can correct me on that, but that's what I've heard um, some psychologists speak about. That if you have a bit of a more tomboyish type of partner, you need to have a, a the, the other side that's a little bit more of the feminine. I would agree. No, I would definitely agree with that because, again, like you said, it, for me, it also does play, you know, the energetics of the yin and yang is a huge variable. And yes, I, I would agree that, you know, men who have more of that femininity, you know, if they're like, let's say 60 femininity and 40 masculine, just to play with some numbers, generally they will find that compatibility with a woman who has the opposite. And again, it's about complementariness. And I think a stronger, uh, uh, suggestion to make this point uh, more clear is subhanallah amongst homosexual relationships you see masculine and feminine energy being played out even though biologically speaking they're the same but yet you still find roles attitudes energies and even objects used in sexual performance that represents the uh, you know the opposite uh, gender right so it's interesting because it's like wh- why is that there right and i i would argue it's part of this fitra or even this metaphysical aspect of the human condition which um isn't necessarily part of evolutionary biology but cer- certainly you know no, from an yeah. islamic worldview um it makes a lot of sense dr muhammad i would love to turn to uh learn more about the endless book club this is a very fascinating project that you have going on and uh, can you tell us more about that and how our listeners can can uh, subscribe or or join uh, i think there's a lot of great books and discussions that you guys have. Um, Andalus Book Club is this, you know, I've been I've been getting a lot of requests over the years for people asking me for uh, book lists because they were interested in the references that I always quote and, and the way that um, they shape some of the arguments in favor of uh, a coherent explanation for why Islam is what it is. It's the truth that we believe is the final revelation. So, um, not all the books that I reference usually are Islamic, but they do offer a very strong case for the coherence of our perspective. Now, um, the books are a mixture of philosophy, uh, uh, politics, uh, talking about colonization, talking about uh, religious uh, cognitive frameworks. And what I did with that was instead of giving a book list that is static, that I just, hey, here's a book list and you can go read it on your own. If you wanted to engage with somebody who has access to traditional scholarship, I'm not a scholar myself, but I do study with scholars. And um, uh, what I do is I kind of bring both perspectives. My interests are more on the theological end of things, so I definitely do not give legal rulings on on issues. But what I do try to uh, impart onto the members is an understanding of uh, why you're a Muslim, um, and if those who are interested in Islam, why you should be a Muslim. So, yeah, I just uh, I have this book list there. I have what I have in it is uh, uh, multiple aspects. There's a forum where people can come in and you know we'll share some passages and discuss them. And some books get more traction than others. It's just by the nature of the subject matter that they deal with. 
at the end of every book, there is a live webinar that I conduct for the members that are interested to attend it, um, and I record it. So, yeah, so there's a live recording. So I do the recording and uh, post it up after the webinar. So there's now eight or nine webinar recordings for the books that we've covered so far. And it usually goes for an hour to an hour and a half, sometimes two hours, uh, just talking about the book and its relevance, its um, how it, why is it important, why did we choose the book, the subject matter that it deals with, um, and how does it uh, shape our thinking about uh, uh, the issue that it deals with. I also have a couple of series. I'm, I'm starting to do these book series where, or subject series. So I have a series on philosophy of science. I have a series on Imam al-Ghazali's Deliverance from Error. And these are usually three to five part series that I have there um, where I cover additional books that I don't necessarily cover in the forum. And um, yeah, that's that's what it's it's developing into that right now. And I'm starting a couple of courses in the near future that I'll be announcing um, once I have the first one fully developed, inshallah. So yeah, it's it's a place where people can come in. It's it's a month to month. You know, if people want to join and try it out for a month, they can do that. If they want to stay on, by all means. Um, but yeah, it's not. There's no contracts or anything for people to be in for like you know, ages. Um, and if there is one book they're interested in, for example, they can come join in for that month and have that discussion. But yeah, it's a monthly webinar that they get to basically have a chat uh, about this. I give a presentation in the webinar to start, and then I open it for a live Q and A. Or we just have a, an ongoing discussion. Awesome. Yeah, that's great. I, there's a lot of uh, books up there that are some of my favorites too. And um, recently, um, I also uh, started about halfway through Soul Machine oh, as mashallah, well, yeah. uh, which, which you recommended. And uh, really cool. It's just a great way to capture the evolution and history of the idea of the soul and, and the mind and uh, in, the, in the Western context. Muhammad uh, Ghilan also has a podcast, ladies and gentlemen, um, which is full of a lot of great topics uh, pertaining to science, philosophy, medicine, different things that we've you know broadly covered here today. So I recommend everyone to go check that out as well, inshallah. Um, Muhammad Gilan, thank you so much for, for being on the show today. It was an honor, and I hope to have you back again soon. I think there's a lot of great subject matters that we can um, have some more coffee over. <laughs> the, the honor is mine, Karim. I really appreciate the invite. And uh, yeah, it's been a long time coming. I heard you first on the Mad Mamluks. And um, yeah, it was an intriguing subject. That was actually the trigger for one of the episodes for my podcast. So I really appreciate you reaching out and us having this discussion. Yeah, you no problem. I actually, I was, I'm a subscriber to both of you, Mad Mamluks. Are sh- shout out to the brothers of Mad Mamluks. Love you guys. Um, and and so when I heard, um, so one day I was just driving to my office and I heard your um, your podcast where you talk about that that show that I did on the Mad Mamluks. I'm like, man, I, I should get in touch with Muhammad again because, you know, he, uh, maybe it's a sign, you know, he mentioned uh, that, you know, Brother Karim Sirajuddin. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to reach out to him because I'd love to pick his brain. And, and here we are today. So I'm really glad uh, that Allah SWT brought us uh, together and, and may it be the beginning of, of more, inshallah, to come. I mean, I mean. Jazakallah khair, Sidi oh, yeah. Muhammad, and, and may Allah give you tawfiq in all that you do. I mean, Ajma'in, Barakallahu fikum. Jazakallah khair. Kareem Sirajuddin here. Thank you for tuning in. Please visit nurhuman.com to learn more about how I provide personal, spiritual, and relationship counsel and growth. Don't forget to visit coffeewithkareem.com to see the latest news and updates about this podcast. Please generously help sponsor the show to keep on going at patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem. That's patreon.com slash coffeewithkareem.